This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 9 of On Another Track. Please be aware this episode was recorded on the 24th of December 2020. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. The US House of Representatives debates the immediate removal of Trump. Spain records temperatures of minus 25 Celsius after recent snowstorms. And in Brexit, UK drivers have been banned from taking ham sandwiches into the EU. What other strange and wonderful things are we going to see in this New Year's world that we inhabit this week? On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Most people have 20 minutes in the morning while they travel to work and 20 minutes maybe at night where they just grab a time to decompress. The actual format of 40 minutes works quite well. Did you feel like there's a contradiction there between, you know, me being espousing the importance of listening and slowing down and I'm, I'm rambling, cut me, cut me. That's the voice of Jan Zlotnik of The Exit Brand. When you first meet him, you're blown away by his warmth and humility. He believes the key to good relationships is to be able to read between the lines at what is not being said. But before you can ask those questions, you have to open the exit door with warmth and trust. Listen as he takes us on the journey of life and how he plays it so well. He'll even show you how to meet yourself going out, coming in through his exit brand. I started first by asking Jan about his New York-based company and the key role he plays in that business. I have a consultancy called the Exit Brand, and uh, the name itself is, is kind of funny and even kind of controversial among my colleagues and I, but uh, the Exit Brand is a consultancy that helps companies with their brand strategy, and from that brand strategy, then implements all of the marketing communications. Whatever the, you know, whatever the medium is, I am also then the creative director. So in a sense, I'm the brand and creative director. And I've always been of the philosophy, even as a creative person, that the most creative act in marketing is strategy. And strategy comes from one thing, and that's brand position. Brand position is the story of the brand, basically. That's it. So, um, you know, I, I'm a little different that way in terms of the creative. Not that all creatives aren't strategic. They have very good st- strategic minds. But strategy, to me, is, is a thing you focus on at the beginning. And it has to have a creative lens, not just a, an academic or intellectual one. I love that, actually. And, and one of the things I noticed when I was doing a bit of research is that exit equals entry. It's one of the same that you said. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, the exit equals entry was actually helpful. It was in um, in answer to one of my favorite clients who we helped reach their exit strategy. It was a company I worked for called Grapeshot, an English company. They had a unique algorithm that became pioneering for programmatic advertising. And this CEO founder who... 
I spoke with months after the exit and we all left because Oracle acquired us. Um, I told him, you know, meeting with my team, we're having drinks on the rooftop at the Restoration Hardware in the Meatpacking District downtown New York. And we're talking about, you know, our wonderful experiences at Grapeshot and the two previous companies and how we've helped these companies, you know, reach great valuations. And, you know, it sounds like it's all about money, but we really were talking about the human side of it, of how many employees and their families were helped by this. It was a lot of hard work for many years, thousands of employees, and they were able to realize educations for their kids, homes, better health care. You know, there is some human value to making money in, in this world. And, and then also, you know, please, you know, of course, uh, find time and place to, to give that money to others who need it more. And we were saying, well, y- you know, what we do is, is help companies with their exit strategies. And then we, we evolved it to the exit brand. When I spoke to the CEO founder, he said, I love everything that, you know, the whole idea of what you're doing, the whole consultancy, but I'm not crazy about the name, the exit brand. I don't want my employees, if you were coming to me, to, to know that I hired an agency called the exit brand. You know, why do I want them to be thinking about us exiting? And I said, it's a really interesting point. I said, there's two things I would say to that. First is, I think we're in a different world now. It's more progressive. I think employees know this, whether you like it or not. And it's better to have that transparency and say to them, here's what we're looking to do. It's going to take years or a year. And we're going toward an IPO or an acquisition. There's so many different ways to look at an exit. And, and that led to the, the narrative and our own story of exit is entry. It's not necessarily the giving up of your whole brand and taking the money and running. Yes, that can happen. I don't really like that. But many times, like Microsoft and LinkedIn, LinkedIn became a better place to work. The culture gained more value and more opportunity to help its employees by virtue of Microsoft because it was a good combination, you know. So we said, well, let's help people understand that exit comes in many forms and it is an entry. It is a door opening. And isn't that what life is like? Every time we reach a door that's an exit in any facet of life, it's the next door to the next thing. And that's growth. That's life. There's nothing to be ashamed or, or to be whispering about. Say it out loud. You know, Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, as one of the habits said, you know, uh, begin with the end in mind. And we have many ends and many beginnings. So why not put it out there? You're absolutely on the money there. And I, I think that's been a firm belief of mine is that you keep it human. You keep it very visible with transparency. And there's a clarity about where that roadmap is taking us. You know, we're planning the next five or maybe 10 years or maybe it's the next couple of years. But so how did you distill it down to the human level? Because there's always seems to be a resistance in business to start to think it on that humane scale. You know, how does it affect the families? How does it directly affect the health of the employees, mental and physical? Um, so how did you kind of get to that point? How did that journey begin for you? What was your exit plan when you went on this journey creating the business? I think it was from uh, early on when I was at very large companies and I was more of a cog. Um, and you're kind of, uh, especially when you're younger, not really aware of all that machinations of the corporate wheel. And you find yourself 
out uh, or you're working at a place that's become something different and um, you don't have any stake in it necessarily because at that point you didn't know that you should negotiate options or shares. So as you grow, you realize that that's not really right. You know, that's the part of capitalism that is broken. And in this woke period, especially in conscious capitalism that's really emerging, it's time to be transparent, to have a candid talk about that. And we actually have this type of conversation I'm having with you now, with our prospects early on. I mean, like initially. And that means we're talking with C-level right away, which is another another benefit of calling ourselves the exit brand. We have an immediate bridge to the financial people who are normally more left brain than creative right brain. So it's a little bit like we're a Trojan horse. We get in there and they say, oh, here are the creative marketing guys. You know, they're a... You know, they're, they're going to cost us a lot of money. They're an expense, not an asset. And we come in going, no, we're about helping you to, to gain valuation, to realize more value for your investment money to your investors. And then they go, oh, that's a different story. And then once we're in there, we do the right thing. <laughs> we, we show them that in every case of our success for which you hired us, biggest priority was nurturing the culture, not doing any marketing, inside out especially in a transparent social media world, you, your marketing starts with your people in the C-level. You know, anything weird that they do or bad that they do, if it's not immediately apologized and, and forgiven, and it better not be so egregious that it can't be forgiven, that's a part of your, the, the value of your stock. And C-level's understanding that now. They do see it. Even if it's only on a monetary level, they see that connection and they value it And therefore, they have to kind of give it up and say, "Okay, that's what you're telling me branding's about and you're helping me understand. Do your thing, because before we thought you were just having a creative, you know, fun of feel good visuals and sounds. And it's all very nice and everything, but we didn't really see the value like you're telling us now. That's lovely how you summed that up because that's by and be my experience over the years, seeing, you know, companies go through this transformation from this organic mom and pop business to one where, you know, it's uh, now we're, we're going to get rid of the C players because, you know, we're only going to have A's and B's in the team and we're going to strive this forward and it's going to get results. And, you know, there's always this big banner. And I'm very biased being from Europe, you know, and you've got a background from Europe as well, which I want to talk about soon as well, where your family came from. Uh, you tend to find that things are a bit more organic in Europe, you know, and I'm generalizing there. I know I am. Uh, when I came to North America and Canada, it was quite a shock, the capitalistic approach to things. You know, I'd never really experienced it firsthand at the coalface. So what I wanted to ask you, and I wanted to dive into a couple of things that you sort of said was that what I call the financial people don't see the benefit of having marketing people sometimes come in because they don't see value. But I'd love to talk about that point in a moment. But the point I want to get to is why is transparency so scary to traditional corporations in the environment that we're in here in North America? I think it's because they're under the gun too, to report. And you know, before Warren Buffett came out some years ago, in a really popular video that really eschewed the whole notion of quarterly reports and how that was really harming values of companies. Um, the, these officers who are, you know, as you say, kind of nervous about, um, about things like that uh, are themselves under the gun. You know, they have to produce numbers. And so, you know, it, it's a trickle, trickle up, trickle down thing. And I don't blame them for it. It's very human 
thing. And it becomes like anything that we've done wrong in the past, you know, racial justice, you know, climate control. It's recognizing that you can intellectualize that you aren't a racist or that you don't pollute um, because of the way that you behave. But emotionally, you're, you're not educated. You're not educated on what level you are. You are doing things to, if not promote, to tolerate things that are just classically wrong. And you're, you're forgiving yourself too easily. We recognize that in the corporate culture. We have empathy for that. And we're saying, let us help you. Let us show you how you can get what you need and want, your numbers, but do it in the way that is most effective. And we're talking about neuroscience here. So, you know, if you think this is just marketing feel-good stuff and it's just for our own creative juices, let's talk neuroscience here. You know, the, the study of the brain and studies by people like Paul Zak have shown a decade or more now that you trust before you respect so trust is about warmth. That's the door that you first need to enter, open and enter. Trust, warmth, the warmth of a human being, the warmth of a message, an environment, before you can get to respect. And respect stands for capabilities, competencies. Most companies, especially in the tech world, give you a water faucet, a, a fire hydrant of respect, capabilities. Here's how great our technology is. Here's what we've conquered, you know, and they're proud of it. They've spent millions, tens of millions of dollars, years of research, and their very left brain approach to it is, let's tell people about all the facets of our technology. That's about respect. That's important. But you haven't given them any, your customer, any reason to trust you. There's no warmth coming from you. You might as well have been a robot or given it to them in some kind of you know, message and no human face. We know this anecdotally through our lives. When you meet someone at a bar, at a restaurant, at school, at any walk of life, if they started espousing their resume to you, it would be a turnoff. You know, here's my title. Here's what I've done. Here, all of the things that earn respect before you feel any warmth from them to then in, you know, have a conversation. And if you can't have a conversation with someone, why are you going to do anything with them? And, and you summed that up so well. And I know just before we started recording, you talked about warmth. So I'd love you to go there for our listeners, because that was such a great conversation that we had. And I missed it because I hadn't, I hadn't pressed the record button. So would you mind just reiterating to me and, and to the I, listeners what about you know, what I, warmth is about? Sure. I, I was so fascinated with this neuroscience because it was part of the you know, our own little strategy of the Trojan horse, you know, okay, if we're always going to be knocking heads against the financial guys and getting our budgets for marketing, you're spending what on what, you know, then let's understand this game really well and play it well. And I don't mean that in a, you know, in, in a cynical way. The, the game of life is the same way. You know, you, you want to help people and do good in the world. You have to have some warmth. You know, you have to approach people, you know, in a way that shows that you care. You have to smile a little bit. You have to listen. You have to slow down. Uh, when I was diving into this neuroscience and I was talking to a psychologist, uh, I, I asked, I said, well, can you tell me, because I'm like scribbling notes, and 
making, I'm just so excited about it. And I'm saying, can you tell me the psychology term, the academic term for this, you know, this trust you're talking about, you know, from a, a scientific standpoint, what's registering the brain? And, and the, the, the scientist said, yes, but it's very complex and it might be hard to pronounce. And are, are you ready for it? And I said, yeah, I'm ready. I had my pen poised. You know, I was ready for a long word, multisyllabic word. And they said, okay, here it is. I'll, I'll spell it for you. I'll spell it for you, Jan. W-A-R-M-T-H. Warmth. That's just phenomenal, isn't it? And, you know, it's sometimes those things that are just right in front of our nose or we've done naturally over the years for a lot of people that we don't realize that is the basics of human interaction. It's being about you know, no fear, open warmth, those sort of types of things that we were when we were children in many respects, you know, when we were just naturally us. How many investment deals do we talk when we have a nice conversation, when people, because the way that we approach this is we aren't just talking to the CMO to get a consultancy in marketing and branding. We are saying, no, no, we, we appreciate the CMO, of course. Um, we are saying we, we need to talk with the CFO and CRO and CEO because this is on a different level or, or there's no conversation. We just, that's the way we work. And based on our success, we generally will, they'll say, okay, we'll give them a, an audience. It'll be a waste of time, but we'll give Jan and his team an audience. We tell them that this is affecting your business. It's really about kind of going back to where we were in terms of being connected to who we really are when we were kids. We don't have any inhibitions. We, we generally are kind of warm. We're generally open. And I think a lot of the time and we disassociate ourselves with that, you know, get in contact with the warmth that you had when you were a child. What inspired you? Why do you discover things when you were a child? Because you're interested, you're not interested in just people, but you're interested in doing things and discovering things. It is that, that instinctive, the thing you're born with. You know, people talk about how you have to build empathy. And the thing is, you're born with empathy. You know, you lose it along the way, either through the way that your parents are not nurturing you or through other environmental, societal things that happen. But you have to regain empathy and re-nurture it yourself. It was always there, you know. So the, the investors who don't have that empathy, who don't think, who don't evoke this feeling of warmth, they lose deals. You know, politicians who don't have warmth, they don't make legislation happen. You know, they don't gain the favor and the camaraderie of other world leaders in order to move something forward. You know, that the academic who has a great idea that can forward progress in climate control or racial justice, they're not going to succeed if they don't have a listening and warmth quality to them. And humor can be a big part of that. We talked about slowing down, which was an interesting thing, which we're doing at the moment with the, you know, the COVID virus and people are isolated and we've had to slow things down because not communicating face-to-face -face other than Zoom. But how can people regain that empathy or that warmth that they had when they were a child? And maybe they've been, they've got slightly divorced from it. What things can they do? <laughs> this is going to be really simple. And it took me a long time to discover this. And, and it really became clearer to me during the pandemic to such a degree that I, I started writing about it. I always carry with me a, a little brown notebook. You know, I've got stacks of them and I keep it in my back pocket or my backpack. And um, 
the, the thing that you can do is, and it's going to sound too obvious, but it's just like when somebody says, well, if you want to get in shape, you have to eat better and exercise. You know, <laughs> that is a fact. So the, the, the crux of the problem is how do you start? How do you maintain that? That gets into habit and you can read books on how that, how that works with your brain. And you know, you, you, if you don't make it a habit, it's going to just be a fad. It'll go away. So the thing that has to become a habit is listening. And what we say, what I've said, is it's not just listening. And you'll hear people say listening with intent, and that's a good way to put it. Listening intently, you know, really listening, not waiting to talk. And listening, as I say, between the lines. You know, in branding, when we're interviewing, and we don't do focus groups. I mean, focus groups don't don't get you there. It is, it's not a, a diverse opinion. It's one person who is dominating the conversation and they're getting $50 for their sandwich or whatever, and then they're out of there. So we would rather talk to 12 people over the course of a month and each person with like three days, like live with them and do some ethnography work, than you know, do any kind of focus group. And when you're doing that, what happens is we use the expression, you're listening between the lines. It's like the pause in music that's so important, the interlude in a composition in music, is as important as every note. And that silence that you can perceive in, in, and interpret it as an emotion that they're giving you without saying, articulating it, will, will help you get to an answer that can help them. Because they're not going to say, you know, like Henry Ford's famous line, they're not going to say that they need a car because a car wasn't invented. They're going to say, I need a faster horse. You know, if you ask them, you know, what do you want? So you're not going to get the answer. But if you listen between the lines, they're going to say things about time and their value in time and the problems that they have maybe with horses, you know, and then that might lead you to or validate the idea of a machine that you're going to invent and the world has never seen before, a car. So what is your car analogy in what you're trying to help the world see anew? And that person who you're talking to who has no idea about that, they're not going to articulate it for you. But if they tell you something and you get it between the lines, then you can translate that into a positioning, a brand position, a story that no one in the category has thought about Um you know, Apple is a good example of having done this. And by default, you as a startup become the leader. By default, you have invented a new category. The most famous one for me, and it helps C-level management to understand what brand positioning is, is Starbucks. You know, after all these years, it's still Starbucks. Because, you know, the light bulbs go off when I offer to them, what do you think Starbucks business is? What business are, are they in? And it would basically be, you know, coffee. You know, we're in the business of coffee. Totally, okay. yeah. Now let's look at the four quadrants of coffee. You know, we make high quality coffee. Everybody's going to probably say that. But, okay, you want to own like the best high quality coffee. Okay. How about fast coffee, instant coffee? You have that. You have flavorful coffees. You have the least expensive coffee. Those might be your four areas. What if you came along and, and were the fifth quadrant? the outlier. That's what Starbucks did. 
Howard Schultz came up with an idea that didn't fit any category, and the positioning was three words. And the three words, and I, I talk at NYU Stern School of Business, and over the years that I've spoken, I have not had more than a handful of students, the most current brains in marketing and branding in, in, uh, in New York, come up with the answer for this, because I guess Starbucks is like such, such old history. But the three words have nothing to do with coffee, and it established a fifth quadrant, a fifth position that no one had, and by virtue, they became the leader. They didn't have to go up against the other categories when they could be crushed, you know, and spend all this money climbing that, that hill to get to a, you know, a, a top three and make money against the competition. They invented a new category, by default became the leader, started a new industry. What were those three words? Those three words. <laughs> you put me on the spot. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm not a Starbucks guy. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's more about branding and marketing than Starbucks. And it's, <laughs> it, 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 I love when we don't know something. It's okay. Yeah. The three words are, uh, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like saying, "I know what it is. I know what it is. I know what it is." <laughs> That's absolutely right. Go it's it. so illuminating. The three words are the third place. Oh. Howard Schultz was a, a, a young lowly employee of Starbucks. There were three of them in Washington State and Seattle. And he happened to take a, a trip on his own to Italy. And he saw the Italian culture in the 70s and um, early 80s. And he saw how people drank coffee there as part of their culture. They never took out coffee. There was no such thing as takeout. You go in and you have conversation with people. And the environment is where you are. And, and he perceived that America was ready for this place that wasn't home. It wasn't the office. It was this third place where you're willing to spend more money than you ever had to just feel more like a human being than you, than you do at those two stressful places. And I don't mean all bad stress. It's home and office can be good stress, too but a place to chill out that created Starbucks, not just the advert. They hardly ever did advertising. It was the whole culture of it, the language, the music, the, 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 the aroma. I'm standing in line waiting 10 minutes to spend $5 on coffee and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> that is phenomenal. And I totally relate to that. And thanks by the way, educating me because I didn't know it was called the third place. That was such a, a revelation for me, but it means so much because I can relate it to loving France. You know, when I lived in the UK, we'd get a ferry across to France in the summer. And then 45 minutes, we're in this different country. And what I loved about it was it was the third place for me. You know, it was a, a culturally, it was fantastic with food. When you met the people, you saw the colors, the vibrancy, the energy of that culture. But the thing I can relate to, and you've just summed it up in one thing, that third place, was that the French in the morning when you went in to get your, your coffee and you bought your croissants, you came and sat down and you saw the Frenchman come in and he ordered his glass of wine at 8.30 in the morning. 
And I just loved that. I thought to me, well, it's so decadent for us as, you know, from the very reserved British side of things. But what was lovely about it was that was part of their life. It was the third place that you explained. You know, it's between the home and the office. And we, you know, they've got the other end of the day that the French do as well. They have their hours between five and seven, which is their third place, which we probably don't have time to dive into. But you know where I'm coming from. It's that pause before you get to the next stage of your life that day. That, that's how I see it. Yeah. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Jan Zlotnik of The Exit Brand. Next, I wanted to ask Jan about his personal life and where his family came from and how Myers Grocery fed into his business. Jan, I wanted to take a little journey into your background because I love to find out the kind of backstory on, on how people got to where they are and, and the family background. Tell me about Myers Grocery and your family history. Oh, wow. You know, um, you know we have our, our website, theexitbrand.com, but um, one thing that I, I keep around is my Jan Zlatnik. By the way, my family calls me Jan. I grew up as a Jan in America, but so much international work and and people saying, what is it? Which is your name? And I said, okay, I give it up. You know, it's, it's Jan. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of settled on that from a corporate standpoint. Um, but the, um, the the Myers Grocery is on my Jan Zlotnik or Jan Zlotnik site because it was so important to me and me knowing more about who I am and where I come from and me listening to myself between the lines. Uh, and And it always would come back to my grandfather, Meyer. And the, the reason was that, you know, I could think it's just an appreciation that can happen at different points in your life for the people who came before you, the stories that made your story, and how courageous they were. And it gives you courage when you think there are dark times. You realize, you know, you think this is a dark time? I mean, think about my grandfather who had to leave Russia under tyranny of villages being burned down. Um, And as a Jew, he left his family in Russia, his mother, father, and brother. And on his own, as, as, as a late teenager, comes to America where? a place that he has no idea about, crosses an ocean to get there at what peril to his health, and and then starts a life. I mean, we think starting a new job is tough. <laughs> I, I, I just remember so many great stories about him. And he, he then started his life. He, he married a woman from England in America, Dora. Uh, my sister is named after her. My sister's name is Doran, like the like the old band, Doran. Yeah. And Dora and, and Meyer had one son, my father, Herbert, and they lived above a grocery store that they started to just make their way in America. And, and this grocery store is in Washington, D.C. And my grandfather um, would get up early in the morning and he would, in the dark, before anyone was up, drop down, do his push-ups, drink some raw eggs way before Sylvester Stallone did in Rocky, and come down a winding staircase and open up 
the door and sweep the sawdust off the floor of Meyer's grocery, which must have been, you know, a massive total, uh, a total of like 300 square feet, you know, and just stocked with grocery items. And he was a social media legend before social media because he knew everyone in the neighborhood. They knew him. They knew Dora and Herbert. And they knew neighbors on such a on such a deep level. They listened to each other between the lines like nobody's business. And they forgave each other and they had empathy. So, you know, I thought about it. I said, he is my guru. He is my mentor. He's not here anymore. But I remember stories as I was growing up. I remember he walked tens of miles to get to us and give us rides on his back. He was a, a big, strong man. People used to say Meyer is strong as an ox. And so I captured that and I, I wrote a story about him on my site called Meyer's Grocery. And I have luckily some photos of the grocery store. And I keep that in mind and my, and, and my team does too, of what we're trying to do whenever we do branding and marketing. And that is to talk with customers. We want to immediately understand who they are, listen to what they have to say, listen between lines and help them not sell them. Oh, and that you summed that up so well, help them, not sell them. And I think it's bringing it down to that organic level of being that corner store, being the uh, the funnel for the community, not just to purchase goods and groceries, but to talk about their worries, their fears, you know, their family, you know, their ambitions, their plans in life, their exit strategies, you know, we call it exit now, but where they want to go in life. Yeah. But what I loved about it was that he brought that rich tapestry of, of that kind of culture from Russia, and he made that journey like so many tens, if not millions of people have done in the past. And I think you summed it up really right. I think, you know, we are in a tough spot at the moment. We are isolated. We have a virus that's going around the world, but it's not been the worst place the world has been in. When we look back at the two world wars that we've had that are in recent memory, how do people keep families together? How do they keep communicating with each other and talking to each other and supporting each other? And, and I don't know if you feel this, but today it's, it's moved to a different level. The kind of the way that we communicate is the way that we're doing today, you know, via digital means. But it doesn't mean that we still can't be authentic and real and read between the lines, like you say, and find out somebody's real story. You know, can we empathize with them? Can we feel what they're feeling? Can we show emotion over this meeting? We can. We can do all that. We just have to make sure that we go back to base, back to square one, as we say it, and say, okay, what did I feel when I was in that situation? Listen, I know you you mentioned your notebook just earlier a second, and I want to dive into that because that's a lovely kind of segue to that. You've done a fantastic thing called 23 Things I Wish I Could Ask My Mum and Dad Today. And that title just blew me away. Tell me all about it. Well, um, my little brown notebook, my little notebook, and that's why I have now another site called jansLittleNotebook.com. And um, that happened because I was waking up in the middle of the night during this pandemic and, you know, kind of almost like in a panic attack, but not quite, thankfully. But I had these questions that I was asking and I was asking them, I think, out loud. And I caught myself and said, what are these questions I'm asking? And being a, a journalist, I, um, I wrote down these questions. I was asking my parents, my father and mother, who had died many years ago, these questions out loud. And I thought that was very interesting. And I was sharing these questions with a friend. And that friend said to me, you know, 
you should put this in a real book because it could help other people. And we started talking about this whole notion, and there is a whole range of study about it and, and books that have been written about the, the value of questions, just questions. There's a wonderful guy who I've met named Warren Berger, has a couple of books just on questions. One is called A Beautiful Question. And he has a background at Syracuse, and, in, and he has a background in journalism. And he, had, he would teach classes and write, he, and he became a, a great writer, too, still is. But I mean, he wrote for the New York Times and Time Magazine. And he talked about the value of questions. And he said that in journalism school at Syracuse, there were no classes on how to ask the questions. Now, how could you be a journalist and not be trained on the the question itself? (laughs) Totally. As if it's just so natural to ask a question, so you don't need to think about how to ask it or the real beauty of a question. So I started, you know, getting really into that. And I realized, you know, the question is the answer. I don't need my parents to, yeah, it's, it would be great if I could tap into the other world and, and if, the, you know, if there is one and, and hear them actually answer me. It, it, are the answers coming from them? Are they coming from me? Does it matter? I'm asking the questions. And when I look more into this and the psychology of it, If you have great conversations with people, a lot of time it's because, and children teach us this, it's because you're asking each other questions and you're listening, period. Stop right there. So you're not being judged on an answer. You're diving deeper and deeper into your feelings. You're asking each other questions. You're listening to the answer, yes, but then you're moving on to a deeper question, you know, Usually it's something like, I'm a trained journalist. Usually the simple thing is, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. What do you mean? Can you say that again? Why? 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 And I'm not then saying, well, here's my view on that. I'm just getting deeper and they're revealing more with permission that that they didn't even know they felt. And they're being released from that repression. And I think we all have conversations that could go deeper. And I thought this book could help. So I put all these questions, 23 for my father, 23 for my mother. I, I got a designer. I, t- I talked to a designer whose father passed away some years ago. And she's a, a wonderful designer named Catherine Budai, B-U-D-H-I. She's in Austin, Texas. And she loved the project and she created art for each question. So she created abstract expressionistic art for each question. Now, of course, it's going to be subjective, but I fell in love and I could see in each piece of art how it related to that question. And so there's a piece of original artwork on on each spread. Another change we made in the design of the book was we didn't think it was intimate enough to have a question on each page because when you open a book the experience is that you have a spread and that is your space that's your environment when you're reading so don't have two questions just have one and the piece of art and let that settle and dive into that it might be the only question you ask yourself or have a conversation with someone else about for the entire day or month The real 
humbling experience from making this book and putting it out there is that people are doing what we hoped, which is they're talking to the loved ones in their lives now who are still alive. They're taking the chance now while they have this precious short life and not putting off having that conversation because they see these questions that I wish I could have asked my mom and dad. I love that so much. You inspire so many people by that because, you know, naturally when I was younger, I used to ask those types of questions because I was interested in social history. I was interested in where mom, where did you come from? Dad, how did you get here? Why did you join the army? You know, why did you end up in Glasgow? You know, and I think that's the wonderful thing about what you've done with this. And I'll be totally upfront. I've not bought this book yet, but because the way it was designed and the way that that title just spoke to me, I'm actually going to be giving this to somebody as a, as a present because just for me, it was very inspirational. Now, if somebody wants to get a hold of this yarn, what's the best way of actually purchasing this book? Just go to Amazon and if you have my name, which is kind of difficult, I guess, Jan Zlotnik, but if you have the name of the book, 23 Things I Wish I Could Ask My Mom and Dad Today, there are other books that have the number 23 in it. So this is the 23 Things I Wish I Could Ask My Mom and Dad Today and my name, Jan Zlotnik. You can find it, but something that most of the people who get our book are finding it and finding value in coming to our site, which is jansLittleNotebook.com, J-A-N-S-L-I-T-T-L-E-N-O-T-E-B-O-O-K, Jans or JansLittleNotebook.com. There are only a couple of pages on it. It gives you reviews. Um, Amazon has its reviews too, so I have reviews on Amazon the reviews are valuable, not just you know, humbling to me, but because it tells you what people are getting out of this. It's so amazing what people are doing with this. Somebody yesterday, a guy named Steve Garfield in Connecticut, posted that he was having a live show with his mother, Millie. And if you want to tune in, I tuned in. They're holding my book and he's asking his mother one of the questions, you know, like, what were your quiet places you like to go to? And she is alive. And he recognizes that that's what this is really about. And she answers it. And it was like three minutes. And it was gold. It was so amazing. And it's, again, it's funny she say this, because I did say to my mother, who's in the UK at the moment, and she's been isolated for quite a few months, you know, where she lives. You know, I'm doing this podcast series, Mum, but I'd love for us to do one. Well, we have a conversation about your life in Glasgow and how the Craigs travel from Ireland and all that sort of social history. Because you're absolutely right. These are nuggets of gold that we've got to preserve and we've got to ask the questions and we've got to get the answers. You know, it's so, so important. Yeah. And, and again, I would just say, and I was, I've been there, so I, 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 it's not a caution or a warning or anything. It's, 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 it's not so much that you need to get an answer. It's listening to the story listening to, yes, their answers, but it's not like a definitive answer necessarily. It would be nice if you have a really tough question, and there's some tough questions in here. You know, like, like, did you ever quit something, Dad? You know, or did you ever feel completely defeated? Or what did you do when it felt like nothing was working out? You know, these are some emotional questions that if it's not an exact answer that you're looking for, it's that person, that loved one opening up and talking about that with you and you just listening without judgment. You know, these are what I call great signposts for life. 
you know, when you get to that junction in the road, which way did you go, Dad? Which way did you take? And why would you have done that? What were the thinking, you know, what were you thinking about? You know, I, I love those open questions because there's no yes or no answer to them. And that's the wonderful thing about life, isn't it? In the business that you do, it's the rich tapestry that's interwoven with all our personalities, our fears, our joys, our ambitions, our, you know, ultimate ways that we want to go in life, uh, really kind of write that tapestry for us. And it's about weaving that, isn't it? That's what families are. They're just the woven tapestry of life. It is. That's, that's a beautiful way to put it. And and um, I think when you actually physically, literally have a comforter that is on you and you're in front of the fireplace having your hot toddy or whatever, and it's snowing outside, there is a sensation about life that is just you know, unmatched. You are in a golden moment and things as bad as they might be seem really suddenly clear. Not that they're perfect, but that you can deal with the pain and stop suffering. You know, there's an old stoic saying of um, you can't and shouldn't think that you can ever stop feeling pain. That's life. But what you can possibly control and deal with better is suffering, even though you still experience pain. Now, that's very interesting uh, about the suffering and pain. You know, that, that, that is part of the process and, and the way of building the, the building blocks of life. It's part of that, the joy, the pain, the fear and everything that goes in there. I wanted to just briefly, because I know time is rolling on and you, I could, I could, there's so many things I could ask you. But I'm going to ask you a couple of quick things, because when you started out, did you ever dream you were going to be a journalist? And what was that journey like? Tell me about that, how you got here. Yeah, you know, I always liked writing as a kid, and I wrote poetry uh, early on. And actually, when I went to Brown, I studied under a poet. I was the only freshman in this poet's class, a remarkable, renowned poet named Michael Harper, who's since passed. And he had some amazing work. And I just basically camped out in front of his office and uh, and said no i know there's only you know 12 chairs here and this and i'm a freshman but i, I you know i just love poetry i want to do it and he, and he let me in and ultimately and really for my parents uh, in my senior year i decided you know my parents are going to come to graduation i'm going to graduate with honors somehow you know I, I was playing two sports it was a full schedule as it was and i said i want them to not just see me get a diploma i want them to see me get the honors that they they would have gotten if they had the chance to go to college. Meyer would have gotten. He should, they all should get one. He should get one for Meyer's Grocery, you know, a doctorate in social media. <laughs> totally, totally. So I said, how can I do this? And, and Michael Harper said, well, you could write a manuscript, essentially a uh, manuscript of poetry. So I wrote a book of poetry in my senior year at Brown called Spatter Doc. And it was, you know, some sophisticated stuff that I learned from Michael Harper. So we wrote in not just pedantic, pedometer, you know, the free verse, but also, you know, sonnets and, you know, more complicated things like that. But mostly it was iambic pedometer, which is free verse. And they got to see me, you know, be, be pointed out for coming up and getting that honor. So, you know, that, that poetry and, and that study of, of what was in, at Brown called semiotics, a study of signs and symbols, was something that get to this place of reading between the lines, of just feeling more empathy, uh, regaining my empathy, and helping a person get from the business they thought they were in, which everybody knows, 
to the business you're really in, which only happens by tapping deeply into what your customer is about, what you're about. Totally, totally. And and really what you're doing and what I loved about it was your earlier life was all about a journey. You know, I was reading about Myers and then how you traveled to Europe and how you, I think you met your good lady as well on a trip, I think. Was that correct? I I, I mean, that was a wonderful story. Uh, no, actually, I met my wife in California. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was when I left home after graduating Brown, I went to Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, decided to leave there without getting my master's in journalism because I was I was conflicted about spending Myers inheritance, mm-hmm. big chunk of it, on what was journalism when I started feeling this creative siren. And yeah, I could have written ultimately feature as opposed to reportage. But I was drawn to advertising because at Northwestern, there's an advertising school too, Kellogg Marketing School. So I met people there. So I I just stopped. And it was hard. I'd never really quit anything. I thought that that was the idea of quitting was a bad thing. And luckily, my my mates in at journalism school, they said, you're not quitting. You're choosing a new path. That was one of my greatest life lessons. I went west and met Melanie, my wife, out there, she had a shepherd husky. After a couple of years, we came back east because basically that was where the mecca of advertising was. And, and I needed to go to school to build what they call a book. So I went to School of Visual Arts, put together my book in advertising and hit the sidewalks to get a job at, a, at an agency as a junior copywriter. So, so you really were in the era of the Mad Men then, is that correct? Or at the end uh, of that era? Well, yeah, kind of the end. The Mad Men is more the, more the 60s. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there is some 70s, but um, yeah, there was some of that, not as much. And it was a little bit, yeah, of the, I, I didn't have three martini lunches. Well, yeah, <laughs> oh, but, but there, were, there were more lunches like that. And there was more of a free reign of, you know, yeah. being a marketing. And it was a golden years of, you know, yeah. Of marketing. What I wanted to do is really set you up for a really kind of one really final question. So one of the things that I always ask my, my interviewees is, if you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, I would say just start listening better now, you know, um, because when you're 18, you think you know a lot of the answers. And uh, luckily, you know, I was into poetry, so I was, you know, kind of different that way. I did like to listen to my heart. But um, it, you can't start too early to listen between the lines. You know, um, when your friends and family are, are speaking to you. It's not just to be instructive, prescriptive. There's, they're revealing something about their own lives. And having that conversation earlier than later is good because there's no guarantee that you're going to live, even as a young person, another day. You know, <laughs> not to be maudlin, but, you know, live, if you're living for the moment, start early in listening better. So I would say that maybe. No, that's really good advice. And also, I think the other one that you said much earlier on in the interview was that slow down. That was one thing that came through to to me was slow down, listen, you know, live in the moment, absorb, read between the lines. You know, these are all great things that feel. It's all about that soul, isn't it? You know, it is not yeah. just feeding somebody else's soul, but feeding yours. Just briefly before we go, I'd love for you to let us know how we can get in contact with your agency because I think you've run the agency for, or you've been in that sort of type of agency for the last twenty years. Is that correct? Well, the Exit brand is about three years old. Yeah, and before that, I would be, and it usually came from being a consultant. And then because when you do what we do, what I do, strategy, not just creating ads or logos, 
which is important. But when you do this type of depth of work, you're embedded in the company and your relationships are deep. And what has happened, gratefully, is that people ask me to stay on. So that's happened over the past 10 years that I've joined these three companies and helped them to exit. But the exit brand is our consultancy now. We do brand strategy and branding and marketing, you know, so all the way through production, et cetera, all experiences. And um, theexitbrand.com, it's simple as that, theexitbrand.com. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for asking. No, and that's my pleasure. And what's the easiest way if anyone wants to reach out to you, either through, you know, the the book or through your exit brand? What's the best way of getting a hold of you if anybody wants to reach out to you? So the exitbrand.com for you know branding and consultancy, but really, you know, Jan's little notebook.com for the book or LinkedIn. So people trying to remember what was that email? What was that phone number? You know. If you can possibly get from this uh, session my name and my spelling, great. But you'll find it. <laughs> well, Jan, you know, it's been phenomenal. I know that we came together through a, a kind of friend of both of us, a work colleague, uh, Ron France. And I'm so pleased that you put us in contact with each other because I've had very limited time with you and I appreciate it so much. But I'd love to ask if there was a chance to maybe have a chat in the new year about maybe how the book has gone or some other things, aspects about marketing or even about just asking questions. That would be a great session. Just to imagine that. Imagine a half hour where we were asking each other questions. Maybe drive the, drive the audience crazy. <laughs> I would love that because that would be such a, that's such a roller coaster ride for me, but so exciting. Yeah. So yeah. Exciting. And, you know, I, I am truly honored that you asked me to, to, to do this, you know, that people would find this um, helpful and a value. Uh, I, I think, of course, there is value in it, but to be on a show and be talking about this, um, I'm really humbled by it. So thank you for this honor. Well, it's really been a great pleasure and I look forward to seeing you really very much in the new year and uh, reconvening then. Same here, Dave. Best to you and your family. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. My guest this week was Jan Zlotnick of The Exit Brand. Gaining trust before respect by reading between the lines with warmth. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.